This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for the Hendricks Center for Cultural Engagement. And today our topic is in the series World Religions, and we're discussing Hinduism. And my guests are Subhash, and I will let Subhash share his last name because he says I could never pronounce it. So go for it, Subhash. <laughs> yeah, my full name is William Joseph Subhash Muttanmudi. Muttanmudi is my house name, uh-huh. and William Joseph uh, was my father's first name. Uh-huh. When I came to United States in 2000, uh-huh. Social Security Office changed it. Okay. So now people get confused when I say my name is Subhash. Why not William? Uh-huh. So I have to tell. Oh, my name is Subhash. It's not William. Okay. Well, Subhash, <laughs> we're glad you're with us. And you teach at the South Asia Institute of Christian Studies in Bangalore? Yes. I teach New Testament Studies. Okay. And a graduate of, of the seminary yes. here. And you're also lead pastor at Crossroads Church and an online teacher at Liberty University. So that's you're right. just busy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we'll talk, about, we'll talk more about your background uh, and how you can help us um, uh, understand Hinduism in just a minute. And then we've got Conrad Bauman. Now, he's uh, coming with us by Skype, and normally we would have a face and a name, but in this particular case, because of sensitivities, and we'll talk about that in just a second, uh, we've decided to do this audio only with, with Conrad, and you are a missionary for Crossworld. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And, and, and how – go ahead. Uh, we uh, – we lived in India for some time, and um, we are now in Toronto, uh, Ontario, up here in Canada, working to, to reach the South Asian diaspora, and then to coach, mentor, and train other churches and believers on how to do skillful cross-cultural communication and ministry among South Asians, specifically from India and various parts of India. Okay. So, and how long did you live in India? We, My wife and I have either been directly or indirectly involved with India for over 15 years. The most recent stint, we were in a state that had an anti-conversion law, and we were running a Great Commission company seeking to expand the kingdom, and see Jesus' church expanded uh, for about five years. Um, And uh, we ran into trouble with the government, more or less, and we had to leave. And so now we're here pursuing God's agenda here in Toronto. Okay, so- sounds great. Appreciate the introduction, and let's let's go ahead and talk about background here for a second because I think this is important. Uh, Subhash, you grew up in India, yes. And uh, do you were you in a Christian family to begin with, or were you raised? In- I, my dad was a Catholic. My mom was a Hindu. Okay. And my father uh, did not practice uh, Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, he actually joined with my mom. And we grew up right from our uh, childhood. I'm the youngest in my family of five uh, mm-hmm. children. I grew up as a Hindu until I 
became a follower of Jesus in uh, 1983 when I was 19 years old. Okay, very good. Uh, and and uh, Conrad, I take it that you uh, ministered in an area that was had a lot of uh, uh, Hindu practitioners. Uh, I, I, you live in India. I mean, that pretty much it's either a Hindu or, or Muslim for the most part, right? That's right. We, um, we lived in, it, it was actually the BJP heartland, and so a lot of fundamentalist Hindus lived where we lived. Mm-hmm. And um, we were kind of right in the thick of things, to, to say the least. Okay, now you used an abbreviation that I think most people wouldn't know. So, so you said BJP, is that right? That's the current ruling political party, and um, they are a, a political party that wants to see India uh, return to her Hindu roots. Um, and India, t- to be Indian means that you're Hindu in their eyes. And so uh, they make policies and they instill persecution against Christians and Muslims uh, because they're not Hindu. Yeah, and this is part of a, really a reality that has come around relatively uh, recently at the political realm. Um, uh, Subhash, how... How common is this? And I know that it's caused many Christian missionaries to be unable to get back into the country and work. So, um, so how common is this, this policy? This has been happening for the past twenty years, mm-hmm. um, and there were uh, four states before nineteen ninety which had the bill anti-conversion um, bill that prohibits people moving from one religion to another religion, mm-hmm. although constitution gives complete freedom mm-hmm. to profess, propagate, and practice uh, any religion. Mm-hmm. So it stifles people from um, choosing a religion of their choice. But uh, off late, uh, the government, as uh, Conrad said, is a Hindu nationalist government. Mm-hmm. So they want to make sure missionaries, uh, both Christian missionaries and Muslim missionaries, do not uh, convert Hindus uh, to their religion. So they enforce anti-conversion. Okay, now what most people probably aren't aware of is that Hinduism, and we're putting, I'm going to put it in quotes, we'll talk about reason why in just a minute, is the third largest religious group in the world after Christianity and Islam. Uh, this has to do in part with the extensive population of India. And Conrad, I'm going to assume you might know this, uh, and that is, uh, and, and Hinduism was largely confined to to the Indian region or the Southeast Asia region uh, for a long time, but because of the diaspora that you've already mentioned, uh, Hinduism and Hindus are now spread all around the world. Uh, do you have any idea as to the numbers that we're talking about when we when we sure. talk about this? Yeah. Yeah, so um, there's a saying that the sun never sets on the Indian diaspora, and so you can go to any country in the world and you can find men, women, and children from India. In the States, there are about 3 million people from India that reside. Um, In Canada, where we live, um, they're probably... In, in our city, there are anywhere between 500 and 700,000 people from India, and they would be Sikh, uh, Hindu, uh, Jain, um, Parsi, or, or Muslim. But, um, I mean, we're talking millions and millions and millions and millions of people who have gone to every corner of the world, who have uh, 
Hindus used to be afraid to travel uh, because of a concept called Kalapani, and with the which means black sea or black water. But with the advent of technology and modernization, now you can find Hindu people in almost every country of the world. Yeah, and the number of Hindus worldwide is somewhere around between eight hundred and nine hundred million. So it's 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 a huge. Uh, conglomeration of faith. Well, let's let's turn to something that I've alluded to a couple of times. I'm not too many uh, necessarily intending to tease people about this, but when we speak of Hinduism, we have to think completely differently than Western religion, um, and and also we have to think completely differently about thinking about there's one thing called Hinduism. Uh, uh, Conrad, I'll start with you. Um, I imagine when you went to India and began to minister to people that it it sort of took a while for you to get your your head around that. Uh, and, and, and we're really dealing with a conglomeration of various religions tied to India, which some people say um, have, has been labeled Hinduism unfairly, while other people defend the terms. Uh, since you've lived in India, and I'll ask Subhash about this as, as a native Indian in a minute, um, did you come across this when you were in India as you, as you thought about interacting with people? Yeah, and this is a very crucial point that you bring up, Dr. Bach. And so basically, um, there are two ways of looking at Hinduism. You can either look at Hinduism as a religion, or you can look at it as a civilization. And depending upon how you look at Hinduism will determine how you interact and minister to people. And so my family and I, we have come to a point where we understand Hinduism to be a civilization. So in the same way that you say someone from China is Chinese, and they're part of the Chinese civilization, we have learned to say that Hinduism is a civilization of people. And under the umbrella of this civilization, you could literally have thousands thousands of varieties of various religions. Um, you know, you could be atheist, agnostic, pantheistic, you could, you could be um, whatever, whatever you can think of, it, it exists within the Hindu umbrella. And so basically, yeah, to, the short answer to your question, Hinduism is a civilization, and if you understand that, then every state you go to, every village, there's going to be some different kind of religion, but Hinduism as a civilization is a great way to organize those thoughts. And so it's a way of seeing life in the world is what you're talking about in many ways. Yeah, there, there are definitely some unifying elements when it comes to Hindu culture, um, but there... You can basically say India is like a million countries wrapped up in one, and um, and so um, even the the Hindus, like the BJP party, they refer to India as Hindustan. You know, you heard of Afghanistan, Pakistan, right. Uzbekistan. You know, Stan basically means the place of, and Hindus have traditionally referred to India as Hindustan. And so, when the Mughal invaders invaded uh, centuries ago. Um, Prior to that, Islam was not India. Christianity would have been mainly in the South because of the Apostle Thomas. But generally speaking, Hindustan is the place of the Hindus, and under Hinduism, there are literally thousands of different kinds of religions that have different beliefs and worldviews. You know, this is uh, it's interesting because actually the name Hindu itself is basically a name for a region that surrounds the Indus Valley originally. So, um, so it it fits that description. Okay, Subhash. So, how did Conrad do in describing? Hinduism and in thinking through, uh, you know, that we're not just thinking about we're not thinking about religion in the classical sense with a doctrine and that kind of thing. Yeah, as Conrad said, uh, it is 
it's a conglomeration of many many religions mm-hmm. and uh, every village and every uh, um s- state you go to you see different religion and if you look for one thread that unites all the hindus probably you might not uh, find one so uh people try to define hinduism and often time they fall short of their definition mm-hmm. so i go with uh, uh, this kind of definition of hinduism is a conglomeration of many religions many world views that often change adapt but will have never one claim and they have different claims and uh, different world views and they all live together mm-hmm. they t- try to adapt say for example uh, uh we you come to hin- india hinduism is different from the india uh, the hinduism that is practiced in central america or singapore and malaysia um you know in those days hindus uh, scattered to other places like sri lanka mauritius uh, south africa uh, through the british colonizers and central america and those people who moved out of india they still keep to their uh 200 years back religion mm-hmm. but you come to india they have adapted so much and uh, the hinduism between uh india and malaysia probably are different okay so so there's no one size fits all it also strikes me to be and this goes back to your comment conrad about it being a civilization that there's almost Uh, I'm going to say this in the loosest sense of the term. There's almost an ethnic identity or a cultural identity that's a part of it that drives it. Is uh, is that is that your sense, Subash? That would that would there's this cultural root that says, in effect, I'm Indian and this is what we believe, even though those beliefs are varied. Yes, that is there is something sacred that keeps Indians together. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at India, there are three major races mm-hmm. one is a dravidian race mm-hmm. another one is uh, aryan race mm-hmm. and the other one is mongolian mm-hmm. mongolians uh, look uh, like chinese and uh, people oriental people mm-hmm. but dravidians are dark skinned people some places if you look at uh, people they uh, uh, share a lot of physical features with uh, people in africa mm-hmm. so uh, with all these racial differences and uh, language differences and uh, world view differences there is something that unites hindus which i see is uh, people not having a single claim mm-hmm. this is the way we need to live mm. it's a democracy of religions mm-hmm. and uh, you, you, there may be three people in a home you me and our mother all three of us can have three different gods three different world views but we are hindus mm. and uh, that keeps uh, kind of the country together mm-hmm. the people together although we hear some of uh, the unrest on the basis of religion um, in some places particularly north india but on the whole the society is intact so so india in many ways was designed to be there uh, are ended up being very pluralistic from the beginning because of the mix of its history that's correct Inter- yeah. interesting and of course people may or may not be aware that that in the recent history you have uh the 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 division of what originally was a unit a, a much larger country in that you have pakistan which was created in 1948 47 48 and then you have um Bangladesh which I think was in 1991 and these were predominantly muslim areas that got shedded off of or or divided from India which was 
predominantly Hindu, but not uniquely Hindu. There were significant Muslim population in India yes. as well. 18 to 20 percent of uh, Indian population mm-hmm. that we are talking about. Uh, 200 million people mm-hmm. are Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say every fifth Indian is a Muslim. Mm-hmm. There are concentrations, uh, places like De- Old Delhi and uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, very high concentration. And there are a uh, lot of Christians in pockets. You come to Kerala, where my uh, that is my home state, mm-hmm. 40% are Christians. Mm-hmm. And some places in Northeast uh, are uh, Christians. In one state, 97% is Christian. Yeah, my my sense is from what little I know about India is that there's a significant Christian presence in southern parts of India, particularly the further south you go. That's right. And uh, and then as you move north, it becomes less so. There's there's one other element of this before we get into the kind of the worldview elements of Hinduism that I think is important. Usually, when people hear about India, they think about Alongside of it, the the caste system that is a part of Indian culture, or at least has been, and um, and this is also related to this racial mix that you've been talking about, Subash, uh, and the and originally the various ways in which um, the various races came together, and that there are basically. Uh, four castes, and then there's a non-caste, yes, if I can right. say it that way. Yeah. So you've got your priests, your warriors, and traders who are all considered to be what's called twice-born, and those are separate ca- groupings of, of castes. And then you have the servant level of the caste, and then you have the non-caste or the Dalits. Yes. And uh, I take it that one of the things that's happening in India proper is that is that Christians have begun to approach Dalits and treat them completely different than the caste system, yes. and this is produced uh, a response from Dalits towards Christianity. Yes. Um, the sociology of uh, Dalits and Dalits embracing Christianity goes back to 16th century hmm. to uh, uh, missionaries like Francis Xavier, who was a Catholic missionary, mm-hmm. and then another missionary during the same time, Robert De Nobili. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he embraced uh, the upper caste, Francis Xavier, uh, embraced low caste people. Hmm. Hinduism, if you look at it's a uh, it's a religion of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, there are three races, mm-hmm. and we actually uh, uh, talk about only two races in this: Dravidians and Aryans. Mm-hmm. And the Mongolians joined a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sociology of Hindu religion assumes that the caste system was introduced by the Aryans when they moved to India many thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, and they introduced uh, this caste based on color, Mm -hmm. Brahmin, Mm -hmm. uh, Kshatriya, who Mm -hmm. is the warrior, Mm -hmm. and Vaishya, who is Mm -hmm. a businessman, Mm -hmm. and Shudra, who is a person who burns dead bodies, Mm -hmm. keeps the city clean. When they were living together, there was another caste that was born. That caste is Dalit. Mm-hmm. It's not considered still as a caste, mm-hmm. but it can mean any uh, one who is depressed, oppressed, underprivileged, who is not under any class system. Sometimes called the untouchables and oftentimes viewed not as a, as a full human being in many ways, right? Yes. Yeah. Actually, till 1950. Uh, 40s, they were called untouchables. Mm -hmm. And that discrimination is still there in many, many villages. 
and later on gandhi called them uh, children of god mm mm-hmm. and uh, that actually a kind of derogatory word mm-hmm. because uh, uh, sociologically speaking the gods were the brahmins mm mm-hmm. so they didn't want to be called children of god and they adapted this name dalit mm. dalit can be in, in north india south india and the dalit is not a caste it is an identity interesting yeah Huh. And Conrad, you've seen this at work too, I take it, um, and it certainly is one of the features that many people are aware of, even if they have a distant relationship to India that exists. Um, are, uh, what, is the, uh, what is the impact of Christians and, and Dalits uh, that you're aware of? You know, um, there's a lot of neat work happening uh, in India among the Dalits, and um, my family and I, um, we worked among middle and upper class, uh, economic, economically middle and upper class Indians, most of whom were Brahmins or Kshatriyas, um, in the state we live, because a lot of the Christian work that happens, happens among the Dalits, um, which means that consequently the upper class and the the brahmins and the kshatriyas there's not much work being done among them and so we decided that we would go to to reach among them but what subhash is saying is really crucial to understand because caste plays such a huge role in india and for those who are not familiar with india you have to understand that um historically when you were born your caste determines a number of things immediately before you live a week of life it will determine you know who you who you can marry it will determine in some cases what kind of job you'll have or what kind of life you'll have or who you can interact with or who you can't interact with and um even when i lived in banaras or anasi for a little bit even when they burn the bodies on the Ganga river um even the low caste people um you know different levels of the ghats or the stairs leading down the rivers they'll burn the the high caste people higher and it just decreases from there and so in life and in death there's this discrimination based on the the name that you're given by this system and um even if you go to the india matrimonial websites like shadi.com um one of the things you have to fill out is caste and a lot of times parents in india when they have arranged marriages um parents won't even consider marrying off their son or their daughter to someone who's not from the same caste and so it's a limiting factor in terms of love and families and and so it's it's very well intricate and in in order to understand india you have to understand the caste system yeah. and the and, and of course you know, this is deeply um, rooted in the history of, of the country. Um. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. 
we should have done this earlier on, but um, you know, the practice of Hinduism and the religions associated with it really go back to uh, the mid-second millennium B.C. I mean, this is an old, old faith that we're talking about, and then it's gone through many variations with many impacts. Uh, let's talk a little bit before we transition into Hinduism, real briefly on the impact of Christianity on India, because this is an important part of the story. One of the things that is a feature of Hinduism is it's primarily an oral religion, uh, or, or, or oral set of beliefs, as opposed to being based in written texts and that kind of thing. Uh, and so it produced a culture that was that was very oral, uh, that kind of thing. And you were sharing in the break how. Um, how Christianity uh, has had a real impact on India because of the influence of what came with Christianity. Talk yes. a little bit about that. Yes. Um, actually, modern India is a product of Christianity and uh, the work of the missionaries. Um, missionary movement began in 1600s with the arrival of uh, uh, many important people, but uh, notable among them was uh, Francis Xavier, Robert D. Nobley and Zingenbalk. The f former two were Catholic missionaries, and Zingenbalk was uh, a Protestant missionary. And he was the one who introduced uh, a printing press, and he introduced uh, a typing in Tamil scripture. And the revolution began with the arrival of William Carey from England in 1792. When he came, after uh, a lot of struggle, he introduced newspapers in which he actually surfaced social issues like uh, burning of widows and women education, educating the Dalits and the underprivileged people. And eventually they started schools for women and underprivileged people. That began the education movement in uh, 1800s and 1900s. And you go to any city, any villages, Good schools were started by Christian missionaries, and all this computer revolution, medical revolution, all of them were the seeds of missionary work. And, and in fact, education today still has some of this character in some parts of India. I've, I was taught at India, this is about 10 years ago, and went to speak to teachers at a, at a school that a Christian school was sponsoring. It was a Christian school, but the intent was to educate anyone in the region, and, and parents of, of people of a variety of backgrounds brought their kids to these schools because they knew these were the best schools yes. in the region. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And they blindly trust Christian educators. Mm -hmm. So if there is a name like Holy Cross or a Little Flower <laughs> or Mary School, uh, whatever it is, you know, Protestants uh, also have great schools, mm -hmm. and um, uh, they blindly send their children because they know Christians educate their children well. They trust the educators. One of the schools, like there is a college, undergraduate college in New Delhi called St. Stephen's, that has produced all the major leaders in the central government. Mm. Major uh, lawyers and the journalists and the people who are sitting in the cabinet, they're all, most of them, come from that, that school. Yeah, it actually makes for a good transition in thinking about the nature of Hinduism and, and just the, the nature of Eastern thought in general. Because again, another difference between Western religion as we think about it and the beliefs that are tied to Hinduism, the worldview beliefs, are that you're not talking about doctrines. And you're not talking about uh, 
holy books in the way that we think about it. Uh, you're talking about a, a, a reflection on how life, what life is, and how you're connected to the creation and that kind of thing in very, very general terms. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what Hindus are likely to believe about who they are. And now I've got concepts like, and I'm just going to introduce uh, words here and let you talk about yeah. them, like samsara, yeah. karma, uh, moksha. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, you know, I, I don't know of a law firm that's called samsara, karma, and moksha, but so what are we talking about? Actually, uh, Hinduism was a literary religion once upon a time. Mm -hmm. uh, Hinduism can be divided into two. One is a philosophical religion. Mm -hmm. Another one is the popular religion. Okay. The popular religion goes with stories, orality, and uh, they, any superstition. And suddenly, uh, Dr. Bach comes and teaches someone uh, benefited, and Dr. Bach becomes uh, a god, mm -hmm. a small g. Hmm. But uh, the philosophical religion, which is practiced probably by 10% of the people, they don't have many gods, mm -hmm. and uh, they have scripture. And, uh, you know, uh, Indian philosophy has six schools of theology, uh, philosophy. Mm -hmm. They call the worldviews, six worldviews. And along with that, three other are there. The first six are based on scripture called Veda. Mm -hmm. And the other three are not based on any scripture. Veda means knowledge. Veda, Veda means knowledge. Yeah. Veda is also scripture. Mm -hmm. So um, the first uh, six are called Sadarshan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at the world f from six windows, through six windows. Mm -hmm. If you don't like one window, you choose the other five. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like any of those six, you just choose the other three. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just uh, uh, quickly tell you what they are. Nyaya, Vaisheshika, mm -hmm. Yoga, Sankhya, mm -hmm. Purva Mimamsa, and Uttar Mimamsa. Mm -hmm. These are based on Vedas. Mm -hmm. And the other three are materialism. Mm -hmm. They call it Charvaga philosophy, mm -hmm. Buddhism, and Jainism. Hmm. So we have nine schools mm -hmm. through which you can look at the world. Yeah, and we we have separate shows that we've dedicated to Buddhism and Jainism. Okay. So um, so that uh, so and these are all different paths. Different paths. Yeah. Different path. Different way you look at. Uh, say, for example, yoga. Yoga actually originated as a philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an answer to a philosophy called Sankhya. Mm -hmm. Sankhya was more like a science, and uh, they introduced two concepts, uh, Purusha and Prakriti. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, people had a lot of questions. How do we deal with this Purusha and Prakriti? Mm -hmm. and to and we're talking about suffering, right? In, no, Purusha and Prakriti is like yin and yang, uh -huh. oh, okay. male and female. Okay. And, uh, you know, they are inseparable um, by, you know, by a kind of our eye blind, um, plain eyes. But actually, they are completely different. Mm -hmm. How do you separate this? Mm. Then, uh, about 200 years before Christ, uh, a philosopher by name, Ashta uh, um, I forgot his name, he introduced something called Ashtanga Yoga, mm. eight steps mm. through which you are able to separate your soul from your body. Mm. And they introduced, and a little bit later, instead of looking outside for God, they came inside to God. Mm -hmm. That is called Upanishadic religion. Mm -hmm. And that is where you have these five <coughs> principles. All the philosophers and all those people know about it. One is called karma. Mm -hmm. 
samsara mm-hmm. karma is whatever you do you do it today but it has effect tomorrow okay and samsara is cycle of birth and rebirth mm-hmm. then next one is maya maya is vanity mm-hmm. everything that you look in this world is vanity mm-hmm. even you know the table that we look it is vanity because we are in something called maya or ignorance mm-hmm. then atman atman is our, you know it is analogously you can say it is the soul mm-hmm. then brahman and brahman is the ultimate reality mm-hmm. this brahman is not he or she but it is it mm-hmm. so through this five principle this uh, uh, philosophical hindus define the world and any guru movement except iskon mm-hmm. hari rama hari krishna all of them are followers of upanishadic religion and so in the goal of of knowledge if i can put it that way is to kind of um create a union between yourself yes. and this real creation that's out there of which you're a part but that uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of about hindu philosophy that says the things that we see and touch and ultimately aren't real and yes. we need to break away that's from that's right that's right you know a hindu uh, if you look at a uh, an educated hindu and his goal ultimate goal they call it ultimate uh, desire is to realize that they are gods mm-hmm. in sanskrit they say aham brahmasmi that is i am god mm. so atman and brahman uh, are both the same you have a spark of brahman in you mm-hmm. and because of this ignorance or maya you perceive this atman as atman but uh, yoga or you know your uh, the, the philosophical schools help you to understand that you are nothing but brahman mm-hmm. that is also called mahavakya the greatest verse and most guru movements that you see in the west uh which uh, uh a guru means teacher yeah a guru means a teacher yeah and <laughs> uh, people get attracted because you know if uh, their faith is not really properly defined and it is very attractive they say oh i am one day a god mm-hmm. i'm going to be god i'm aham Bra- brahmasmi i'm god and and yoga is a term that simply means union doesn't it yes yuj it comes from a sanskrit word yuj mm-hmm. you just unite what is that unite you just separate from everything and unite with the ultimate reality so it's kind of this ultimate um has a spiritual connection with the creation in some ways i mean that yes. uh um yes. Uh, I, I, before we move on, let me do one other thing, uh, and then we'll come to the to some of the key texts. Um, the The religious practice of those who are practicing Hinduism Hindus are involve uh, the offering of. You said originally there was a religious root to this, the offering of sacrifices and and uh, a room that's dedicated to to these offerings to the gods, home shrines. Food and drink offerings to the gods, some ritual cleansing, removal of shoes, issues of purity with regard to the dead and, and menstruating women. Those are those are features of practice that you see from people who are very devout Hindus. Is yes, correct? Yes, and it is also part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And you know, in India, in most places, you cannot separate religion and culture. Mm-hmm. It's both at the same. 
and uh, all these things that you mentioned are very much part of their life and it is very much a religion yeah, you know you, when you have when you come home you re- leave the sandal outside you don't bring a leather sandal inside mm-hmm. because it defiles the house mm-hmm. if uh, a menstruating woman comes to a public place she defiles the place because they have it's all kind of laws they have developed and they live by it mm-hmm. even though people are probably are scientists people mm-hmm. have gone into all the terminal got terminal degrees mm-hmm. but still they do it mm. uh, it it has become part and parcel of their dna mm. interesting so uh conrad i take it this is uh, if if someone meets someone who comes out of a hindu background they really are meeting someone who looks at the world very differently than they do if they come out of the west yeah and and you know everything that subash is saying is really fascinating um and it, it, it's good and i would encourage the the listeners not to be overwhelmed because the reality is is that when you meet a hindu um it's almost possible to be able to predict what they're going to believe and so the best way to engage with a hindu person is simply just to as you develop the relationship with them is just to ask them what they believe about things because hindus are very spiritually minded they love talking about spiritual things in fact my experience has been a lot of hindus think it's strange that more westerners don't talk about their faith or their their spirituality and uh, so my wife and i have learned to integrate talking about spiritual things in almost every area or every aspect of life and especially money like hindus love when we talk about money and jesus's teachings about money because hindus love money and uh but yeah it, it, it's don't don't be overwhelmed with all these big terms and these big heart crowns ideas and the main thing is is you go straight to the source you have to go straight to the man to the woman to the child and ask them specifically hey what's your understanding of the universe what's your understanding of why we're here you know what keeps you up at night what are you afraid of yeah, and once you begin we... to learn to ask questions that really peel away the outside and getting to the core and the heart of who someone is you can then begin understanding who this person is why they do the things they do why they think the way they think and so that's 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 the only thing you know i i i could really add in terms of um some of these ideas yeah we about. we've called this getting a spiritual gps on someone as we move through these various religions that oftentimes the best thing we can do is ask questions and see what's motivating people what the nature of their belief is what the nature of their religious experience is how they view you know transcendence and that kind of thing and then and just get oriented and just do a lot of listening to start off with um, yeah can i just add one more thing yeah. you know when, when you start thinking about some of these concepts, um, like, um, you know, uh, the, the guy that taught me a lot about Hinduism was a Hindu himself, and he, he taught me that a lot of Hindus, um, they call it Hride uh, Granthas, uh, knots of the heart, so Vidya Kaman Karma. And, um, you know, when you start thinking about these concepts, um, it's very quickly, it, it very quickly becomes evident that the dragon the dragon has created a system of fear and fatalism where even a lot of hindus are even afraid to ask questions because even in asking questions um you know it's bad karma so when you take the uh, bhagavad-gita and arjuna and krishna 
you know, you had two families that were about to kill each other on the battlefield. And uh, Arjuna, you know, Krishna disguised himself. Um, and um, Krishna basically says to Arjuna, in response to Arjuna's concern that, hey, I'm going to fight my cousin on the battlefield. I don't feel like I should do this. He's like, do your duty. You need to do what you need to do. Don't ask questions, right? And so the demonic ideology that really kind of comes forward is basically a system in which um, questions are not encouraged. And in fact, you get bad karma for asking questions so there's a lot of fear in a lot of this stuff and that's really important to know and going into it that's interesting now you've mentioned a couple of things we're really running tight for time so i'm just going to cover this quickly but you've mentioned the uh the ba- the Bhagavad gita i probably butchered that name but anyway that's one of the texts that has one of the core um core stories that undergirds um, some aspects of Hinduism. We've got a series of legends that that um, that feed into this faith, and you've mentioned Krishna and then Vishnu is another guy. Krishna and Vishnu are the two major deity figures that are a part of, of the faith. We've hardly talked about this at all because, again, we're talking about an, uh, more an orientation to thinking about life than we are talking about, about doctrine. Uh, we've we've chatted a little bit, um, and I'm transitioning now. I've just put that in there so that people are aware of it. But the, but the Gita is a major is a major uh, piece of kind of background story, isn't it, uh, Subhash? It, it it is one of the major. Uh, it is part of a major scripture. Mm-hmm. People use it because that is where uh, their core of teaching is demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have Vedas, mm-hmm. they also have Upanishads, mm-hmm. they have other scriptures like uh, Brahma Shudras, and uh, Gita is part of Upanishadic uh, mm-hmm. scripture, mm-hmm. Uh, which is divided into 18 chapters in which they talk about various tenets of uh, the caste-based religion. Interesting. So it's supportive, ultimately, of the caste structure. Yes. yes. Um, Okay, I'm going to transition. We've talked about what makes for adherence. Adherence here is primarily uh, almost sounds like a ethnic or regional loyalties that and 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 an attachment to your roots. Is that a fair summary of, of kind of what the point of attraction is? It is uh, actually because of the casteism. Mm-hmm. It is so ingrained, and uh, they have a deep attachment to their caste mm-hmm. and. Teach a, a deep attachment to uh, the family traditions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if a person moves out of uh, their religion or out their caste, they excommunicate them. And yeah, it's a defection. It is a defection. Yeah, and it ca- they can also go to an extent of honor killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of movies uh, have mm-hmm. come. This is this is kind of one of the major stories these days. Is uh, when a person marries from one caste to another caste or one religion, Hindu religion to another religion, uh, it becomes a major issue. So this walks us into, Kerry, what do we want to talk about in, in closing, and that is, how does one step into this? In other words, you've got this deep cultural adherence to a, really an orientation which you've described, Conrad, as a civilization as opposed to a religion. Um, and there's a lot of sacrifice that comes with considering the gospel, and there's also a lot of almost reorientation about you know what, how you even view religion. 
So Conrad, what, tell us what that looks like as you approach someone and you're interacting. You've already said to interact personally with them, just talk about spiritual things, but that seems like it's a bridge that's a challenge to cross in some ways. I, I have learned from, from ministering in the Hindu world that several things are, are necessary and required um, in, in approaching Hindu people. The first is, is that I have to be secure and confident in the gospel of Jesus. Um, you know, even though there's this huge world out there filled by a billion Hindus who worship 330 million gods and goddesses, um, you have to have the conviction that Jesus is the only way and he is the only true God. And so, you know, when, when you have the gospel interacting and engaging with a worldview and a civilization that has been built over millennia and demonic footprints are all over the place um, and it, it, it's going to be intense um, for the minds of of men, women, children, created in God, have never heard the gospel. So, uh, for, for your listeners, if God is putting on your heart to engage Hindu people, no matter what your background, no matter what your ethnic background is, um, this is a situation that requires all hands on deck. And so, um, the, the idea that you've gotta, you've gotta be confident in the power of God um, to, to, to be with you and to strengthen you and to encourage you because in ministry is very very difficult it's not easy and you'll have more bad days than good days but basically just realizing that you know as you as you begin to think about um god loves these people so much that he died for them and he he doesn't desire any should perish but all have eternal life uh, with him in heaven and so that's my biggest encouragement and challenge is is that um the main thing is is that you do something and that you you love people you learn how to communicate in a way that they understand and that you really you really put it all on the line because so much is at stake and uh, yeah the end is already written and god accomplishes everything he wants to accomplish there's no doubt about that but it, it the, the it's so crucial to understand that this is a spiritual battle and um and it's going to hit pretty hard once you start doing it so and we're almost out of time unfortunately but um so the the key here is to to engage to listen to be aware that this is a very um, challenging conversation in some ways because the orientations are so different, and yet at the same time, there's something to offer to people about uh, about what it is that the gospel steps into, and a kind of uh, individual uh, f- um, orientation to being related to God. We haven't even talked about the whole corporate <laughs> emphasis that's a part of this, although we've suggested it. Um, what this suggests to me is is that we, we've done an introduction to Hinduism. There's a lot more that could be said, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to you guys for more uh, discussion of this and to get into a little more detail. We've served to try and introduce um, the conglomeration that is Hinduism and the variety of things that one deals with when one walks into a world that is impacted by Hinduism. And I really do thank you both for taking the time to be with us and help us get a little bit oriented. Thank you so much, Dr. Bach. Yeah, and thank you, Conrad, as well. Thank you. And we thank you for being a part of the table, and we hope you'll join us again soon. 
Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Thank you.